The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Durnley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, as ever, we discuss updates from across the many front lines of the war in Ukraine. Hear from the British Defence Secretary Ben Wallace and interview Dr Thomas Clausen on the history of how Germany became so reliant on Russian oil and gas. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 11th of August, day 169. And today I'm joined by The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, live from Denmark, where he's been talking to senior European officials, and our assistant foreign editor, Katie O'Neill. Before turning once more to yesterday's explosion in Crimea, I began by asking Katie about a leak of Russian soldiers' candid experiences of the war. Yeah, hi, uh, Francis. So this story is coming from Bellingcat, the open source intelligence outlet, along with The Insider, which is a Russian media outlet. Uh, They have uncovered a large trove of complaints that have been sent to basically the equivalent of the Russian military watchdog, which is the Russian military prosecutor's office. And what these emails show are complaints from uh, men who have been sent to the front line in Ukraine talking about, in many instances, how they feel like they were forced or tricked or coerced into joining the front lines. Really telling a trove of documents. In one of them, one soldier describes how he was on military drills on a warship off the Syrian coast uh, when he was, uh, in his words, tricked into joining the front line in Ukraine. He doesn't say war because he's prevented from doing so. Um, as we know, under Russian law, he says that uh, he no one asked him to join the special military operation, which is what um, Putin dubs his, uh, his activities in Ukraine. There's quite a poignant quote from him in which he says that he lost all of his friends in fighting, that he's in a depressed state, and he says that he's just 21 years old and he wants to live so much. So it's really interesting to get this sort of insight from Russian soldiers. We, we get a, a peek of it every now and again with sort of sometimes intercepted communications between Russian soldiers that are on the front line. But, but that was a really interesting peek through the window into that. There's also instances of families contacting the prosecutor's office asking for details about the whereabouts of their loved ones. Um, there's girlfriends of soldiers and families uh, asking, pleading desperately for information because they're not sure where their uh, their sons or daughters are and they've lost uh, communication with them. So, uh, yeah, really interesting, really interesting insight from uh, from those documents. Thank you, Katie. And I understand as well that's quite an interesting story on the Ukrainian refugees in Britain. Could you possibly update us a little bit on that, please? Yeah, so one of the most heartening um, parts of or, or things to emerge from the war was the warm response that both in Britain and uh, and elsewhere in the West uh, has been paid to Ukrainian refugees who were forced to flee at the beginning of the conflict here in Britain. 
thousands of families opened their doors to Ukrainian refugees. Um, in order to sign up to that scheme, that government scheme, they had to pledge six months of board for Ukrainian refugees who were uh, who were going to be living with them. That six-month period is now coming to a close and the ONS has surveyed a number of families who are part of this Home for Refugees scheme. The survey is quite telling. It shows that a quarter want to uh, to, to halt the uh, the arrangement to bring it to an end after six months, which leaves open the possibility that there are going to be, I mean, potentially thousands of Ukrainians that are currently living in Britain um, homeless come next month when, when that initial six-month period ends. Uh, interestingly and, and not surprisingly, a quarter of those who say that they want the arrangement to end are blaming the cost of living crisis. Um, you know, when you've got families who are struggling to to keep the lights on and, and provide for their own family and keep food on the table, it's not surprising that they're feeling that they're no longer able to do that for, for guests in their home who they, they have taken in um, out of goodwill, but cheeringly, six in ten uh, of those that were surveyed from the ONS say that they're happy to uh, accommodate Ukrainian refugees for longer than they have initially agreed. And the ONS survey also shows that uh, nearly a fifth who signed up to the scheme initially are still waiting to be assigned uh, a family or an in- individual from Ukraine. So hopefully, some of those refugees who are facing um, imminently and uh, no longer having a home can can be reassigned to some of the families who are still waiting to take them in. Thanks, Katie. Now, obviously, the biggest story of the last 48 hours or so has been this strike on Crimea uh, by the Ukrainians and no doubt there's continuing fallout on that. What's the latest that you've heard uh, since our podcast yesterday? Well, the biggest thing to emerge came late last night. We got these satellite images which are showing the extent of the damage that occurred at that uh, Russian airbase in Crimea. And the damage is vast. Uh, in the image, we've got sort of side-by-side pictures which have emerged showing large craters at that base. And uh, very uh, obviously, you can see quite extensive damage to the Russian aircraft that is stationed there. We're hearing that at least eight uh, Russian planes have been completely destroyed. And you can see from those images that a number of others that weren't under the cover of hangar have been uh, significantly damaged. You can also see uh, damage from a fire that broke out there. Um, you can see the, 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 the land around where that airbase is, is is quite scorched. So yeah, the, the extent of the damage is emerging in these pictures, which are really quite quite, uh, quite stark. Also, kind of humorously today, we had the Ukrainian Defence Ministry um, comment on this. I, I don't believe Ukraine has yet to claim full responsibility or to claim responsibility for the blast in Crimea, but the Ukrainian Defence Ministry has put out this sort of tongue-in-cheek mock advert, travel advert for Crimea. Mia, uh, in which it is uh, soundtracked by Bananarama's Cruel Summer. Um, and they are telling Russian tourists uh, through that video that unless they want an unpleasantly hot summer break, they advise them not to visit uh, Crimea. Yes, yeah, so we were discussing that on the podcast yesterday, that as well as the military significance of the strike on Crimea, there's also this influence on morale and, and what the Crimean, what the Ukrainians can do in, in, in terms of the sort of the information war on social media with obviously the stark images that we saw yesterday. Um, just before I bring in Dom, who, as I say, is in Denmark and has been speaking to Ben Wallace, the British Defence Secretary today, um, there's also an interesting story of um, the Latvian parliament voting to say Russia is 
is acting in state-sponsored terrorism. I just wondered if you had any updates or thoughts on that, Katie. Yeah, I think this is just indicative of of the groundswell of support that we're seeing in the West um, towards Ukraine and and a further escalation of of the West denouncing Putin and his efforts in uh, in, in Ukraine. Yes, and, and as I say, the, the, the Baltic nations parliament has actually said, and I quote, Latvia recognises Russia's actions in Ukraine as targeted genocide against the Ukrainian people. So very strong wording there. And we've obviously talked many times on the podcast about the the claims of genocide and what that would mean and the legal implications of that long term. So thank you very much, Katie. I know that you've got to dash back to the, to the foreign desk on what is an extraordinarily busy day for you. Um, so I'll just take this opportunity now to, to come to Dominic Nichols, who I say is live in Denmark. Dom, first of all, what have you been been up to um, in the last 24 hours? I understand you've been speaking to Ben Wallace. Yeah, hi Francis. Hi everybody. I am speaking to you now from the Christiansborg Palace, the the home of the Danish Parliament. I erroneously tweeted this morning that it was the uh, Danish Ministry of Defence. So I do apologise for that, uh, that misinformation there. But I'm I'm from the live from the Danish Parliament here. Uh, so this is the the first full day of a uh, a donor conference uh, for Ukraine. So so equipment and money. Twenty six nations here represented so it was uh, they're all they're all up there now they've, they've had the sort of morning sessions uh where it's all kind of getting to know each other and president Zelensky dialed in video call the prime minister was here uh, danish prime minister um and now they're all into the the super secret bit they've all had to have their phones taken off them they've gone back in to actually discuss the the nitty-gritty of who's gonna who's gonna come up with with what so um today's the main day but last night there was a there was a trilat press conference between uh, uh ben wallace and the um the danish uh, Defence Minister and also uh, Alexei Reznikov, the Defence Minister from Ukraine. So they gave a very brief press conference last night um, at which it was announced um, that, uh, uh, or we, we were told, and it's in today's paper, that Britain are going to be supplying another three uh, MLRS, uh, sorry, multiple launch rocket system um, uh, platforms, plus a load of load of ammunition. We're going to talk about talk about in a moment, but that was all that was all yesterday. And then, I, so this morning, I've just been I've been trying to buttonhole as many people as possible on their way in, and I've tried to grab people on their way out for lunch, and uh, I'll, I'll try and grab them again on their way in. Uh, all the way back out later, there's a press conference in a couple of hours where we will hopefully get a readout of of who's going to do what. But I, I did get a, a very brief chat with um, with Ben Wallace just now uh, in their lunch break. And he said that, that what they've achieved this morning is they've got a fund uh, of 450 million euros. So that's a new a new fund that's being set up. And this is so the EU already have a fund, which is to um, basically to backfill uh, countries who are supplying kits, so countries supplies X number of tanks or air defence systems, what have you, and they can then get the money back out from this this other EU fund uh, for that. That is not what this fund is all about. That that, that uh, has just been set up here. It, it uh, is not brand new today. It has already been in existence. Britain started it uh, a few weeks ago, but the, all the other countries have, have sort of committed to it, uh, and they've pledged a load of money. So the Danish Prime Minister kickstart kicked the morning off with uh, 110 million euros, and that uh, by lunchtime that that have gone up to. So the fund now sits at 450 million, and this is to buy to buy stuff, heavy metal. This is going to be um, through a, a small. Well, as as least bureaucratic as possible, Ben Wallace told me, uh, a small number of uh, of the of the leaders will sit around uh, with with the Ukrainian defence team, say like what what are your priorities, and then they'll go to the open market, see what's available, see what's available through the sort of existing state 
production line so so what what can be got quickest um and therefore and then start starts you know far hosing the cash around so that i mean that's a good that is a good move i'm hoping this afternoon that there'll actually be some pledges on um on training and real estate and equipment which we should get a little bit later um but yeah that, that's uh, that's what i've been up to and i've been like i say i've been trying to make make a nuisance of myself and uh, and, and get in get in as way of as many as many defense ministers as possible and for the benefit of our listeners on the podcast, we should be able to hear that interview with Ben Wallace now. So what have, what's come out of the conference so far, Minister? Well, we've got a donation pot now of the International Fund, which is sort of Danish-UK uh, concept for buying more production for Ukraine. We've bought, uh, well, we haven't bought anything yet, but we have now got a, a pot up to about 450 million euros, uh, you know, included a British donation, Norwegian, Danish... Uh, donations into that and those sort of things will really help in growing uh, the ability to support and arm Ukraine going forward. And, and who decides where that money goes? Who actually places the orders? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll ask a number of member states or countries uh, who've been here today at the conference and other donors to, to, to be part of that decision-making process uh, because you know, we want it to be as transparent and quick as possible, but we don't want it to be too bureaucratic. Uh, and ultimately, it'll be where there is production space where that production space matches the needs of Ukraine is most likely where these money will be spent. And these pledges today, anyone sitting on their hands, anyone looking, looking at the floor when you go around the table? No, not at all. I mean, the EU has a different fund. It's a reimbursement fund, um, uh, and that complements us. That's uh, more of an international uh, uh, fund for the EU across other areas, such as Africa as well and the Western Balkans. But that sort of complements it, but that's like a reimbursement. If a country gives its own equipment and it wants to get reimbursed for that, that comes through that way. Secretary of State Dmitry Medvedev said that an attack on Crimea would result in Judgment Day. So do you think it was wise that, if we take it that Ukraine did attack it, do you think it was wise that that airbase was attacked? I'm not going to sit in judgment over Ukraine. Ukraine is sitting there fighting for its very survival. Uh, and I think Ukraine has to do what it needs to do for it to satisfy its requirements to defend itself. So, look, I, I don't think I'm going to sit there and make a judgment call. I certainly think that Ukraine has been uh, put under great pressure by the logistical supplies sent from Crimea by Russia. Russia uses Crimea. What, what Russia surely recognises is that it can't keep fueling an invading army from, from a location such as Ukrainian soil occupied Crimea and not expect some form of... Uh, action to be taken. Elsewhere in the southern front around Kherson, a number of the uh, Russia-installed local leaders have been attacked and some killed by suspected Ukrainian partisans. Do you think they've learned at all from the British experience in the Second World War with the SOE? And if so, have we been pointing them to certain lessons that that they might want to take from the SOE? I I don't think they need anyone lessons. I mean, I think what what I always said throughout this whole process, there was roughly four phases which was the preparation for war, the phase when it looked like Russia was actually definitely going to do it, which could have been a week, could have been 10 days, uh, and then the invasion and then the occupation. And I have always said, you know, Russia might be able to invade, but it won't be able to occupy 44 million people in a country the size of Germany and France determined not to be occupied by such a regime. And I think what we're just seeing is the evidence of that. People don't want to be occupied by a Russia that... Uh, rapes, pillages, commits war crimes, and they will resist. And I think that is what we're seeing. Um, the, the details are sketchy, but but I don't think they need any lessons. I think you know. Remember, 
to be fair, the Soviet Union knew all about partisan resistance in the Second World War. Uh, they were very often behind, uh, you know, they were subject to a, a similar brutality uh, from an occupying force, and I think they learned how to do it themselves. Given how the impact of the war on Ukraine is felt today in Britain through increased fuel costs, cost of living crisis, etc., why do you think the war has featured so little in the Tory leadership race? I don't know if it has. I mean, I think they're both very early on, both leaders, ship candidates, said very clearly we will continue our pressure on Russia and our commitments to Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, obviously Liz Truss has given a pledge to spend 3% uh, of defence, uh, 3% of GDP on defence by 2030, uh, really starting uh, pretty soon, not, not immediately, but sort of the middle of the decade. Uh, so she's given a, a big commitment that security and stability doesn't go away on its own. And if we're to deal with high energy prices around the world, and unpredictably, you've got to deal with security and stability. That's how you deliver uh, a lower prices effectively in the medium to long term. So she's been very clear. I think Rishi said he would fund whatever the threat takes or took. I think that was his phrase. He hasn't committed to a specific percentage of GDP, but nevertheless, he has recognised as well. Um, just turning back to you, Dom, um, what's the general mood there in Denmark? I mean, there's been a lot of commentary in recent days about this idea of perhaps certain European powers selling Ukraine out in the long term. There's a lot of concerns about the cost of living crisis um, precipitated, of course, by the war. It sounds that things are still developing in the direction of, of, of cutting Russia further off and supporting Ukraine even more so than it's currently being done. But perhaps what, well, what's your feeling? Yeah, I think there's a um, a grim resolution. Can I can I put it that way? I mean, there's not uh, evidently. I mean, many of these defence ministers know each other very very well, but there's no sort of backslapping and how you're doing and kind of borrow your golf clubs and all that sort of nonsense. I mean, they are pleased to see each other. There's an upbeat mood, uh, a business like mood. I think a a determination to get stuff done. Um, I say there's 26 nations here, including sort of Japan, the United States. I mean, there's, big, there's wide, wide representation. Um, so, and the, the opening statements that we were able to to listen to from um, President Zelensky and then the Danish Prime Minister, Danish uh, Defence Secretary, uh, Mr. Reznikov and Mr. Wallace, they're all, I mean, as if they coordinated, coordinated it, which they, they may well have done. I mean, the, the message was very clearly this is our this is our moment. What are, what are we going to do? How are we? In fact, the Danish Prime Minister said we need to come up with solutions here, such that when our grandchildren ask us what we did, we can look them in the eye and say we did the right thing. I mean, it's quite quite stirring stuff, and no, nobody was left in any doubt that that they're expected to um, expected to lean into this um, in, in whatever capacity they can. If they can offer a, offer money, great. Offer kits, good. Offer trainers. Um, then that's that's terrific as well, or real estate, or what have you. But everyone's expected to to lean in 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 a certain way. I I was asking a number of people here uh, just now at lunch whether you know if anyone's sitting on their hands, anyone sort of looking at the floor when they go around the room, and it is going around the room literally one one to the other. You know, what what have you got? What can you do? Um, and uh, yeah, I was told no 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 one's uh, no one's sitting on their hands. Everyone's um, very aware that you know there there are some very rich uh, nations here and some some quite small nations, but but people are. Are keen to to do what they can. There's been no um, there's been no uh, politicking, I suppose I could say, with a small p. I mean, these are all defence ministers, so they're not um, you know they're not necessarily thinking through their domestic politics lens initially. So so, so there's none of the um, the, the slightly foot draggy 
actions that we've seen in the past from certain countries over over weapon supplies. But no, they all seem to be bullish and and up for it. Uh, and just to, just to the point, you were talking there about Latvia, saying that they've just uh, the Latvian parliament um, having or sanctioning Russia, listing Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. Well, I was I was actually just chatting to Roland Hennings, who's the Under Secretary of State, the Policy Director in their Ministry of Defence. I was asking him about it, and he said, well. It was sort of shrugged. He said, "Well, it's, it's absolutely it's a no-brainer. It's, 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 you know, it should everybody should be doing it." And I said, "Well, do you do you worry that there's going to be some kind of backlash from Russia? You know, a cyber cyber attack or something?" He said, "Well, you know, they'll they'll do it anyway." He said, "They don't really care." So, so very clear-eyed from Latvia about the threat there, and I think that sort of mood of look, we all know what Russia is now. There's no no hiding it. So the, the, the ball's in our court to to do with it what we will. And I think that kind of mood is spread throughout the the whole meeting. Thanks, Tom. That's really, really interesting. Um, I think as well, it will be, you talked about whether the, when, when or if the domestic issue will start to play on the minds of some of these people. And of course, we're not going to know that until perhaps autumn and, and winter hits here. But clearly, the determination that you're seeing is stronger than perhaps is being reported in some uh, publications. Um, just one other question relating to what you've seen in Denmark and reactions there is we've talked on the podcast today and yesterday about the morale impact from the Ukrainian attack on Crimea. Has it been a point of discussion? Do you think it's been registered what the scenes that we've seen there? Perhaps there's concern about the escalation in the Crimean region. Um, what, what, has, have there been any comments or observations you can make on that? Well, I've been asking around anyone that would uh, that would not get out of my way when I sort of stood there um, asking about the attack on Crimea. Everyone's just sort of I, I mean, I genuinely think they don't they don't actually know. They, they probably will do in, in due course, but I don't think they've been been briefed yet. I did manage to um, uh, grab Major General Vadim Skibitsky, who's the acting deputy head of Ukraine's military intelligence. You might remember I, I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago in Kiev. And, and from that interview, uh, he was talking about high miles targeting and, and how um, intelligence cooperation is is working. And that that led to I'm delighted that Russia's reading the Telegraph, but um, that led to Russia sort of kicking off in a very, very minor spat about accusing uh, the US of being too uh, too far involved in the war. But so I, I messed up with him again. I, I wondered if he was going to not want to chat to me, but he was he was very happy, very very uh, very genial chap. And I was asking him about the the raid on the on the Saki airfield, and uh, and he said it was an ammunition accident. I was like, well, yeah, okay, fine. Um, I think that might be. I mean, that might. That might be the cause of the actual explosions, but what caused the ammunition accident? And he just sort of shrugged and said, uh, "Who knows?" And I went, "Well, you do. You know what was it?" And he said, "He, he just sort of wouldn't wouldn't go there. He wouldn't be drawn any further." So I said, "Well, anyway, are you concerned about any any backlash from Russia? This is a, this is a very provocative step." Um, I was surprised that Kiev wasn't hit last night with missiles, for example. Russia after that initial claim that there was you know blokes smoking or whatever they said that so there was there's been very little from russia so i was asking him if, if he thinks that there's going to be some kind of backlash and, and he and again he sort of, sort of shrugged and he just looked at me and said we are ready so again i think people are expecting some kind of um reply response from from russia uh but again running through the whole thing here is this sort of pragmatism this grim pragmatism of we know what the threat is there's no more sort of high words and politicking we've just got to get on with it so i think i think that is that 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 is what's uh, coming through loud and clear from 
General Skibitsky. But I mean, it is very interesting the the the, the fallout, uh, no pun intended, from that attack because there's wild speculation or wide speculation rather of. Was it a special forces raid that went in and set, set explosive charges? Was it um, was it some kind of modified weapon? There's talk of back in the early 2000s, um, Ukraine had a domestic production line of of a, um, a sort of Toshka variant, the Toshka ballistic missile that we've seen. I'm told there was a program back in the early early 2000s that that was apparently turned off. Now, who knows? Maybe that was turned on again a few months ago, and they've um, yeah, they've been, they've got they've got some weapon that no one's seen before and this was that this was the first time it was it was brought out we don't we don't know but what we do know because it's everyone's seen the pictures is that that airfield went up in smoke and and whatever the reason special forces raid um, loitering munition ballistic missiles whatever happened it got through russia's defenses it got through the air defense system it got through their perimeter defense system if it was if it was special forces on the ground and so any way you look at this it is a glaring um, security lapse by Russia, and and I think that if it's systemic, which it probably is, from what we've seen of this of the Russian military in this war, then then that could leave them very very vulnerable elsewhere. And and I just think that it's it, that we've not seen the the last of this. I think Ukraine, however, if it was Ukraine, I think think it was, but however they did it, they're going to be learning lessons from that and trying to trying to modify whatever their attack system was attack methods to do it again um, russia will need to learn fast about how to stop it and as we've seen this is not a learning organization so i don't put great stock at all in russia being able to fix whatever went very badly wrong in crimea a couple of days ago so i mean this, this there might be more of these so it will be very interesting over the next couple of days to see what the reaction is from moscow to this because i, I think if Ukraine can, they definitely will do it again. If there's not, um, you know, if they feel it, it, the, the risk is worth it. Thanks, Dom. And, and and before we turn to just some interesting remarks by Zelensky on that theme, I just wanted to pick up something that you you said there in terms of some of the people that you've been speaking to and what they talk to you about. I mean, you mentioned there about what they read, you know, what their sources of information are. And I think it would just be of genuine interest to to listeners. You know, you speak to these people all the time. Um, what do they read? I mean, are they digesting all? Is, is it just government briefings that summarise sort of confidential information and, and the sort of news mood? Or do they actually spend time you know reading whether it be the telegraph the times the new york times you know i'm just fascinated to to to, to get a feeling of what their main sources for the war are is it the same as us or is it actually are they operating in a totally different plane no i mean i i get the impression that they are this ministerial level they all get their 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 briefs each each morning from their um from their staff and there's there's news cuttings in there which are taken from uh, across the across the global um, press sphere, so I think they they get um, a wide view, um, ourselves included, and uh, and and a lot from the from the US. They will then, depending on their level, they will then have 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 a layer of of um, of their own intelligence placed on top of that. So I think they'll be getting a pretty rounded uh, rounded view of it. Um, I mean, it's always very interesting. I, I remember thinking when i was in the military how how the, the, the military on operations is very good in in stovepipes so you have deep subject matter experts into 
engineering and demining and and aerosol operations and so on and so forth. But actually, I noticed that it was only the, the journalists that were coming through. This is now Afghanistan I'm talking about here. But journalists that were coming through and and just cutting across everything and, and roaming around, getting the stories, talking to people, seeing what it was out on, what it's like on the ground. Um, I, I on the on the military staff, I would read those. Um, the, the news reports a couple of days later, were, you know, with great interest because that that was really cutting across huge areas of of um, of the of the war that I wasn't seeing. So actually, the, the military, for all its its you know, up close and personal with the contact battle, they do need to get their information from from a wide variety of sources, including including the open press. So they do take um, journalism very seriously. There are some. Some outlets they trust more than others, and they have to have to sort of receive the the information through the lens, knowing knowing where that sort of political stance is of of that particular um, media organisation. But I think they do trust, do rely on the uh, on the media, particularly in the West. Uh, we do rely on the media to give us that that sort of rounded view of what's going on. That that then either, like I say, they can either top up with their own their own intelligence, or if they don't have access to to great sort of levers of state intelligence, then them, um, you know what they can what what they get in terms of uh, news from allies but no, i think i think um i think journalists are, are are relied on quite heavily that's really interesting and i imagine of course that what we don't really know fully is is the extent to which russian uh, soldiers are digesting things that they read on social media and perhaps read on on more western news sources what from what we understand it's that they are sort of more consuming what Putin propaganda wants them to consume, but of course that may not always be the case, and that's one of the unknown quantities um, of the of the war. Um, just coming back to this issue of of, of, of direct military engagements, Dom uh, Zelensky's made some very interesting remarks today, um, uh, following obviously the attack on Crimea, and it's essentially he's saying that Ukraine will consider how to inflict as much damage on Russia as possible to end the war quickly. And I'll quote directly in full, just because I think this is this is a really interesting um, observation he's made. So, quote, The more losses the occupiers suffer, the sooner we will be able to liberate our land and ensure the security of Ukraine. This is what everyone who defends our state and helps Ukraine should think about, how to inflict the greatest possible losses on the occupiers in order to shorten the war. Now, we've spoken a lot on this podcast, Dom, about the attritional war and who that favours. But if this is true, what Zelensky is saying, they are going for for much more of an aggressive strategy, one could argue, than, than this sort of dra- dragging out for as long as possible. Clearly, they think the way to win this is through decisive military engagements, uh, perhaps the seizure of Kurzon or um, other parts of, of, of Russian territory, perhaps even Crimea. Just wanted to register your reaction to those comments, because it doesn't necessarily tally with what we've perhaps understood the Ukrainian position to be so far. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there, there does seem to be a a, a a more aggressive timeline entering the narrative in the last few days. So when President Zelensky dialed into this conference here, um, first thing this morning, he, he opened it up. I mean, he, he was talking along those lines. And, and here's a quote uh, that Skubland said, the sooner we stop Russia, uh, the sooner you can all feel safe. Uh, and he says that they need to get their schools open. They need to, the hospitals need to, to, to be safe to operate they need to get on with demining and he said before winter so he's actually putting a timeline on it there that that they need significant action to happen in the uh, social sphere the civil f- sphere um, before winter now 
that might be because we're as we you know we're anticipating winter is going to be hard in Europe, and that will um, where where Russia is going to be able to potentially. Um, uh, you know, threaten to turn the turn the energy supplies off, and that will become more apparent. And that that might then put put more pressure on some of the, uh, European members, European partners. So maybe that 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 threat uh, out there, plus of course what what winter will do for the fighting season anyway, um, and this suggestion that that uh, Ukraine need need a big military success in order to see them through the winter, to see the the Western alliance shore up and prove. Um, that Ukraine can win this war. So, so th- this time frame of the end of the year has been has been sort of mooted in terms of a, a sensible, sensible sort of length of time to be thinking about these things. But yeah, President Zelensky today was actually he said before winter. So it's now starting to creep into the narrative about about a time frame, and this obviously ties in with um, the idea of a counteroffensive in uh, in uh, around the Kurzon or in the in the southern on the southern flank there, um, which. I mean, it's it's either it's either the greatest sort of bluff, double bluff ever, um, or border bordering on a lapse of security because I mean they, they are being very open about their their plans for the south. Um, so p- perhaps we are going to be seeing more references to an actual actual timeline. Um, winter was the first the first hard uh, sort of reference point I think I've I've seen um, acknowledged. But um, but yeah, that might that might be. This might be a new um, a new way a new sort of communication new narrative from from um, from Ukraine actually starting to put some some dates and times on these things. Of course, also there is that the risk that of, of over promising and under delivering. I mean, there's this, this this argument, this strain of thinking that if Ukraine promised too much about what they're able to do in the short term, that the West will be waiting expectantly to see evidence of that, and it won't come um, and so I think that that's also it's, it's this fine line isn't it because on the one hand you want to make it feel like this momentum is on your side you're able to strike in Crimea you've got Kazan in in your sights but at the same time as I say that if you if you if you're not able to actually deliver on that in these kind of time frames and there's also a, a big a, a big risk that's problem um, from from your perspective um, Don, we've talked a lot of, uh, about on this podcast of course about this the strategic and military developments um, but of course these are human tragedies taking place every day and there's been uh, an update from the Ukrainian Parliament Commissioner for Human Rights um, on the latest figures for child casualties since the invasion on the 24th of February. Um, Those are that as of the 11th of August, 361 children have been killed and 705 children have been uh, injured. A further 204 are considered missing and 6,159 have been deported. Now in a future episode I'd like to cover the deportations in more detail because I know we've had some listeners who've, who've asked for an update on that. But what are your reactions, Dom, to when you hear those statistics? Well, I mean, it just it underlines the absolute tragedy of what we're seeing here and the abhorrent nature of the Russian use of force, largely unguided weapons um, firing into civilian areas. Um, I mean, it... it it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. Uh, I don't want to veer back into the Amnesty International report because I think we've we've done that one. But it just again sort of shows that this is a very, I think, imbalanced war in terms of the morality. Um, and and I, I'm afraid that there's going to be more of this to come. Um, it's always the civilians that really suffer in war, and it's generally the the vulnerable, the old, and the young. Um, and I'm afraid, yeah, there's going there's going to be there's going to be more of this. 
Thanks, Dom. And before we turn to final thoughts for today, I was talking to David yesterday um, after you'd had to, to dash for your bus in Denmark um, about this, the ongoing nuclear question, um, in, particularly in the context of some of the news stories that we've been seeing here in the West, talking about the, the risks, particularly from military figures, I should say, um, the risks of some sort of tactical nuclear strike from, from Russia in retaliation for what's been happening in Crimea, or if the loss of Crimea were a serious risk from Putin perspective. Obviously, there's been this talk about Judgment Day um, coming out of Russia in the last 24 hours. Um, and as I say, I was talking to David about about this and and the sort of question around strategic ambiguity. It seems that, that there haven't been deliberately for, for, for strategic reasons, there hasn't been much talk in the West about what how the West would react if there were such um, a, a weapon uh, used. Perhaps that's because they don't want to make it seem as if it's an acceptable thing to happen. And um, the more you talk about it, perhaps the more likely it is that you make it a case. But I do think there's something really serious to be a serious discussion to be had on this, because if it is not articulated clearly, what will happen if such a weapon is used? I fear that it, it's more likely to occur. I mean, there must be all sorts of things that the international community could do to deter that. You could say that, you know, if you were to do any use any of these weapons and you would, let's say, immediately switch off Russian oil and gas, which one could argue we should have done anyway, but that's by the by. You could say to do that. You could negotiate with China to ensure that they would agree to the principle that um, if, if such a weapon were used, that they too would cut off any support of Russia. I mean, are these conversations happening, do you think? And if they're not, why not? I would be very surprised if those conversations were not happening about trying to firm up a, a policy position uh, in the in the event that something did happen there. I mean, in terms of nuclear, not, not in terms of um, tactical or strategic use of nuclear weapons, but President Zelensky, again, in his address this morning, he did, he did talk about the nuclear nuclear issue in terms of the Zaporizhia nuclear plant that is um, in Russian-occupied Ukraine at the moment, and from which there's Ukraine alleging that that Russia is is firing from, so knowing that Ukraine will not be able to fire back. President Zelensky was saying that this uh, the, the nuclear plant is being held hostage um, and saying that uh, that Russia are consciously using the nuclear site for terrorism and said there is a risk of a nuclear catastrophe. And he said the, he was drawing direct parallels with um, Chernobyl in April 1986. And he was saying how how if there was a, you know, a catastrophic incident at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, it would affect the whole of Europe. This the, 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 you know, the, the sort of the, the radioactive cloud that would then engulf you know, huge parts of, of Europe. So I would have thought there, I, th- I think you're you're right when you say they, there won't be a lot of public pronouncements about um, the use of nuclear weapons because it just it normalises it and then it, that, and that's the one thing that um, I think policymakers definitely do not want to happen um, is what Russia does. Russia routinely refers to it partly because it's it's in their tactical doctrine, but also because they know that it that it is the sort of boogeyman of of the of the West. Um, but I would be very surprised if these discussions were not happening behind closed doors, maybe maybe happening right now up in the um, up in the, the, the meeting um, upstairs here um, in Denmark. But I think there also what is out in the public is this idea of, of, of a, a potential catastrophe at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. And there are other there, you know, there are five nuclear plants in in um, in Ukraine. So I think the issue of 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 use of nuclear as in use of nuclear as a as a threat and as a potential um, weapon of war in both the nuclear weapons and nuclear power plant uh, ideas, I think that is. I think they are very definitely being 
being discussed. Um, I don't think we will hear much about the, the former. Um, we probably will hear more from the, about the latter because President Zelensky was very, it, made, it, was, his main, it was his main point. He op- opened with it, talking about the, um, the, the risk of a nuclear catastrophe. So he's, he's put it on the agenda um, and I don't think there's any shying away from it now. Of course, the really uncomfortable thing is if the worst were to happen with one of these plants, that suddenly it would wake up the world to such a degree that it would give Putin an opportunity to, to force some sort of ceasefire whilst international powers went in to try and control what had happened. I mean, it's, we're in such terrifying territory, but it does posit the question of whether actually some sort of incident that, that, that brings the global attention back to Ukraine would actually be beneficial from the Russian perspective. But what do you think? Well, I mean, yes, I'm inclined to agree. We know that he does like to go for the um, the spectacular, to use that phrase, um, to, to, to as the as a as a threat um, against Ukraine and against the, against the West. There's the um, let's say the spectre of nuclear war is often is often raised by Russia. Um, I I don't think it's at all. Uh, out of out of you know, or out of the ordinary to, to think that he might try and engineer something at, at the Zaporizhia plant, um, even the sm- a small leak of radiation, however that could be engineered, um, would just terrify the West, and it might uh, it, it might accelerate the issue. So, I mean, the, the, Russia has shown themselves to be able to just completely throw away any morality or ideas of of um, you know, human rights and and. Uh, uh, environmental rights and, and what is what is good for the planet. I mean, I think it's in their in their interest to do so. I don't think they would hesitate in, at all in engineering some kind of nuclear issue over the over the power plants. Thanks, Dom. And obviously, this you know, as an issue, this is, makes very very uncomfortable discussion, and also, um, and no doubt, it will for listeners as well. I mean, we're not talking about this in a. In a, you know, loose talk, but I do think it's something that, as you say, no doubt world leaders will be discussing in dark rooms. And I think it's right to be seriously confronting this. I mean, whenever a power of saber rattles in the way that Russia is, and we know, as you say, that they are unethical in the manner in which they conduct their military engagements, I think we have to take all of these things um, seriously and, and, and discuss them. Um, but I think we're running out of time uh, today, Dom. So I just wondered if you had any final thoughts for us. Yeah, so I'm hoping that the, um, the press conference in a couple of hours is going to have some detail of more uh, pledges from the um, from the 26 members uh, here today. So uh, I will obviously be there and bring that to you tomorrow. Um, I did manage to grab a, a quick chat with a couple of guys earlier on. I spoke to Yaroslav Nard, who's the Slovakian uh, defence minister, uh, asked if he was uh, what, what was going to be if they were going to be able to pledge anything. And he, he did talk about additional equipment. Um, I asked if that was the S-300s that we know that they have supplied so far. And, and he said, he very firmly said, no, they, they've already been supplied. So um, I don't know what the additional equipment might be, but it uh, sounds like um, Slovakia might be uh, might be up for that. I then managed to grab Sweden's defence minister, Peter Hawkvist, and um, and I asked him if, uh, if the very capable uh, Swedish airborne intelligence and reconnaissance uh, aircraft capability is going to be is going to be offered up and he sort of threw his arms in the air and said too early and i don't know if he meant that it was too early to be discussing the the issue of swedish isr or if it's too early in the morning to be pestered by an annoying journalist but anyway he, he then shuffled off um so i will bring you more of that tomorrow but the uh, 
I think there will be more. So far, as I said, that they've they've got a fund of 450 million euro, which is not a bad way to start the day. And I think if there's not more on top of that, actual hard pledges of equipment or personnel for training or training areas, then um, then this this summit might not be seen as as a success it should have been. So I think there will be more, and uh, I'll find out later and bring that to you tomorrow. Earlier this week, I spoke again to Dr. Thomas Clausen, a historian by training who now works for a think tank in Berlin. We spoke about the evolving situation in Germany and the history of German dependency on Russian energy. It's a fascinating story. It's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast, Thomas. It's been an interesting week, I think, to say the least, in Germany. What's been happening since we last spoke to you? I think there are two words uh, one could use, uh, gas and Gerhard Schröder. Um, the first big news, uh, so to speak, is that Gerhard Schröder returned to the public sphere. Uh, first of all, though, he gave an interview uh, one week ago where he called the war in Ukraine a mistake on the side of the Russian government, but he also said that uh, Russia would now want a negotiated solution if only the US would agree and that Germany should activate uh, Nord Stream 2. And yesterday, the SPD uh, party court decided that Schröder could remain a member of the party despite his closeness to Vladimir Putin. And in a way, it's a very good segue to the other big topic that is at the moment dominating German uh, news, and that's the supply of natural gas uh, from Russia and the situation now and uh, the expected situation in winter. So how is Germany preparing for the winter to come? What are the expectations? Well, the expectations are quite glum. So we had in the last uh, couple of weeks already a lot of trouble with Nord Stream 1, Russia claiming they couldn't deliver gas due to a broken turbine. Then Olaf Scholz, the German uh, chancellor, also from the SPD, drove to Siemens in front of the turbine to prove that it was uh, working indeed and that it was just an excuse on Russia's side. But of course, the big uh, worry is that the gas supply will stop in winter so that uh, Putin will leverage the German energy dependence in order to gain concessions for his war in Ukraine. Um, at the moment, the public mood, uh, fortunately, is still in favor of supporting uh, Ukraine, even if the energy prices would rise higher. So there was a poll a couple of weeks ago which uh, said that 70% of all Germans were in favor of supporting Ukraine, despite um, high energy prices, and only 22% of Germans said they wouldn't. It's quite interesting to see that the, there's quite a gap between the parties. So supporters of the Greens, but also of the Social Democrats, the Conservatives and the Liberals were in favor of supporting Ukraine, while only 14% of the AFD supporters were in favor uh, of supporting Ukraine. And the AFD is, of course, the right-wing populist party in Germany. And also only 45% of the supporters of Die Linke, the post-communist party, um, said they would uh, want support for Ukraine. However, I should also note, and that's another poll that maybe shows that the mood might swing slightly, only 35% of Germans said that Ukraine should receive further military support, and here the number is dropping by 9%. So um, it's difficult to say how it will turn out in uh, autumn and winter, and of course a huge challenge in the upcoming months is to keep the support for Ukraine high despite the challenges in the area of energy uh, supply. We've spoken a lot on this podcast about the energy issues in relation to Germany. I think it's really helpful just for the benefit of our listeners, given that we've got a little bit more time to talk about it today, to just contextualise this. I mean, how was it that Germany became 
so much more dependent on Russian gas than many other countries in Europe? It's a long story. In, in a way, it's a story of the 20th century, and we can maybe briefly sum it up in three different periods. So one can say that it all starts with the Treaty of Rapallo from the, we now, we don't celebrate, but it's now the 100th anniversary. And that was um, after the First World War when Germany and Russia agreed to waive any claims on reparations and so forth and started to cooperate uh, on energy. So that was particularly about oil. Soviet Russia promised to deliver oil from the fields in Baku to Germany and Germany in turn promised to send uh, industrial tools that would allow Russia to extract uh, the oil without support from France or the UK. And in a way, this uh, cooperation continued, always intermingled with periods of conflict, well until the Third Reich. And this is maybe the, the second example that one should keep in mind, August 39, when Stalin and Hitler agreed not only on carving up Eastern Europe, but also on allowing a lot of trade and energy um, export from Russia to, to Germany. And that only broke down, of course, on the 22nd of June uh, 1941, when Nazi Germany attacked Russia. And then, so to speak, after the Second World War, we have the third period of German-Russian cooperation in the area of energy. And that starts basically almost in the late 1950s, when German businessmen said, well, wouldn't it be nice to get some gas and oil from the Soviet Union? At the time, that is being blocked by the US, especially uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And another attempt is being made at the beginning of the 1970s. And here, for example, the work by the historian Frank Bösch uh, is very interesting, and I'm drawing a lot on his articles uh, here. Another date that we don't celebrate, but another anniversary is almost uh, exactly 50 years ago, on the 6th of July, 1972, West Germany and the Soviet Union signed the first contract for natural gas. And basically, uh, gas has never stopped flowing for, I mean, uh, some brief periods, but um, it hasn't really stopped flowing uh, ever since. And we can also see a continuous story that especially the Americans weren't uh, happy, but in the wake of the oil crisis, 73, and also the uh, Iranian uh, revolution in 79 became very clear that this was a beneficial step both for German industry, but also for Soviet Russia. After um, the end of the Cold War, sort of this cooperation continues and the first plans for Nord Stream 1 are being made in 1995. And then uh, 10 years later, Putin and Schröder signed the, the contract. It's very short before the general election in 2005. So it's September 2005 that uh, Schröder signs the deal, finalizes this in October 2005 when he already had lost the election. And in December, he becomes the head of the, uh, of the shareholders committee of the Nord Stream AG. So this is his very uh, swift change from chancellor to Russian gas lobbyist. And that's sort of the last period. And this, this is what we are still, the world that we live in today, or maybe a world that sort of ended on the 24th of February, but uh, that still resonates today. I'm really interested in this, this sort of second phase after the, or during, should I say, the Cold War, when, when East Germany becomes particularly reliant on, on, on Russian gas for, for obvious reasons. West Germany. West Germany. So, okay, sorry. West Germany became also equally reliant even during the Cold War. Uh, that, why, why would the Americans and the West Germans allow that? Well, it's, first of all, an argument that we also heard in the last uh, couple of years, but that was 
Not entirely incorrect uh, then was that it was mainly about energy and not politics. Of course, one could always say that this is a bit naive, and that's certainly what the Americans thought. But uh, during the Cold War, the Soviets never used gas supply as a weapon. And uh, Frank uh, Bösch, the historian, argues that this is because they didn't want to endanger one of the most important export markets. And what the Germans were saying is, and I think one could use, for example, a quote uh, from Helmut Schmidt, another social democratic chancellor, who said after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, well, the usual business with the Soviet Union needs to continue, but it should not be uh, business as usual. So sort of trying to separate business from politics. And at the same time, he was telling Jimmy Carter, those engaging in trade uh, with each other do not shoot at each other. And here we can see the belief in Germany and West Germany at the time, especially amongst the Social Democrats, that in a rapprochement with the East, peace politics go hand in hand with energy politics. So the success of Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik, the idea of you know, accepting German borders, of trying to de-escalate, stepping back from nuclear war, and becoming more reliant on Russian energy sort of went hand in hand. And that was one of the main arguments. And of course, some plans uh, didn't materialize. So there were a lot of grandiose plans of how cooperation could look like, and was always a back and forth. And uh, the West Germans especially always needed to balance you know, the West and their commitment to NATO with the need of the industry for, for gas. Fascinating. So it's not just the story, I think, as many listeners will have assumed, myself included, actually, of, of, of it really being about East Germany receiving lots of Russian gas and that connection continuing because the West had never been as reliant. But actually, it was seen during the Cold War as, as something that was almost above politics or as part of trying to ensure peace between the two sides was to enable this this energy policy. Um, I mean, it's quite, quite extraordinary, um, given everything that's happened since. We talked about the responsibility of, of Gerhard Schroeder and obviously Angela Merkel has also been critiqued and a lot in relation to this. Who, in your view, is really responsible? Is it fair to critique those two specifically? Or do you think actually this is a far, far broader trend? I think this is a story that we really need to investigate and tell. Strikingly enough, I think there are too few books, too few investigations into these networks. What I would say is that we have to move from a very broad sense of Germany as only herself to blame, which of course to some degree is, is true, to, to a more specific question of who is actually to blame, who, is, who are the guilty men and women, so to speak, um, not of Whitehall, but of, of the Reichstag. And here I think we can uh, highlight the special role, especially of the Social Democrats. And maybe to, to illustrate this, um, we could turn to a very interesting book by a Danish journalist, Jens Hofsgaard who published a book in Danish in 2017 and was translated into German in 2019 on gas, money, and greed. And he starts um, with a dinner in 2010 between Matthias Warneck, Frank Walter Steinmeier, Gerd Schröder, and Vladimir Putin in the Café d'Artiste. Uh, this restaurant doesn't exist anymore, but it was owned by Matthias Warneck's son, Stefan. And Matthias Warneck is one of the key actors in the story, and he hasn't really received a lot of attention, unfortunately. And he used to be a former Stasi agent, so an agent of the East German secret police. He made uh, contact with Vladimir Putin very early on, so some people say already during his time as an agent of the Stasi, when he met Putin in his uh, capacity as KGB agent, but he definitely uh, met him in St. Petersburg in the early 90s, when he was representing the Dresdner Bank. 
And from then on, a friendship formed. He was um, taking care of uh, Vladimir Putin's then wife when she had a terrible accident. And he was sort of trying to funnel Russian money into Germany. He tried to smooth uh, the gears of business. And he was very successful. He became the CEO of uh, the Nord Stream AG. He was continually hosting a lot of uh, influential social democrats. And I think he's indicative in a way of a certain network in Germany, especially amongst the social democrats, but of course, also including business members and you know important companies, but also politicians from the left and the AFD. And they were all trying to push for Nord Stream 1 and 2 to facilitate Germany's rising dependency on Russian energy and to combine it in a way with arguments about how sanctions should be lifted, how, for example, the realities of 2014 should be accepted. And maybe the last quote I could give here is by Matthias Platzig, another social democratic politician who in November 2014 said, well, now we have to legalize the annexation of Crimea and it's impossible to imagine that Donetsk and Luhansk will ever return to Ukraine, or at least will return in the present, present um, circumstances. And um, I think this is very much a story that one should be uh, telling and that one should be looking into more. The last person maybe one should mention is Manuela Schwesig, because she only stepped on the scene quite late, but she's currently the minister president of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. And she was in charge of founding a climate uh, foundation, but it's not really a foundation about climate change. It's a foundation funded mostly by Gazprom and the Russian government to complete Nord Stream 2 when the Americans had already uh, put the sanctions on uh, Nord Stream. And this is a huge scandal that at the moment in Germany we start to investigate. There are some investigation committees, but Manuela Schwesig is still minister president. She uh, lit up the um, Landtag in Schwerin in the colors of Ukraine, but the Ukrainian ambassador was quite enraged and called it uh, hypocrisy and uh, probably uh, in this case he had a point. So condensing what you've said, is it fair to say that it's a combination of ideology, political naivety and greed that's essentially got Germany into this position? I mean, of course, I wouldn't say necessarily greed, at least not uh, in terms of Germany as a whole. I think here uh, Hofsgaard found a very good title to his book. And that's the problem. So most of the people, uh, myself included for a very long time, just weren't interested. And if we take another opinion poll from 2021, so after we've already seen a lot of war and terror and pressure, the vast majority of Germans were still in favor of completing Nord Stream 2 because it wasn't seen as a political project. The argument was always it's economic. It'll make sure that we can receive uh, Russian uh, gas at a cheaper rate because there's no meddling uh, at the hands of the Ukrainians, etc. Um, but it has no political component, really. And that's what we can see throughout uh, history up until February of uh, 2022, that most Germans, quite a few influential figures excluded, said that this is merely an economic uh, question. So this is the first aspect. Then there is, of course, a problem for Germany to, um, to solve the energy dependency, because that's not a dependency that, I mean, that's a dependency that's just there. There are few natural gas resources in Germany, although there's now debate on whether we should restart fracking, whether we should continue using nuclear power. But up to then, it was mainly uh, couched in economic terms. So why is Russia not perceived as more of a threat? 
So I would say there are three reasons, um, political, cultural, and economic. We've talked a lot about the economic side, so it was just very, very beneficial for Germany. And then there's a cultural component that Russia is actually seen a bit as a canvas for various actors in Germany, especially on the left, but also on the right as some sort of alternative to the West. So it goes back to the 19th century to a certain infatuation with Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and the deep Russian soul and so forth. And a lot of people thought that maybe Russia can provide, you know, culture versus civilization and Russia would be the, the way out of Western modernity. And then there's a the political side. And here I would say that Russia was actually quite successful to infiltrate certain parts of the political elites. So we have the social democrats who are always infatuated with the idea of Ostpolitik and who were part of these networks that I tried to illuminate a bit where we have a lot of people who benefited personally from these uh, links, but who were also in various committees, the, the German-Russian Forum, etc. And then we have the, you know, sort of the, the, the business side, and that's also the appeal of uh, dealing with Russia leniently for the conservatives. It says, well, it's their economic benefits. And then we have the, the old left that sees Russia still as a big brother from the time of the GDR, and that's actually quite a significant factor. And then we have the AFD, who takes a completely different position, and that sees Putin as sort of the protector of traditional values against Skeropa, and that's the sort of the different appeal. And of course, it's, it's impossible to bring them together. So the reason why the Social Democrats, for example, or at least a substantial part of them, they also include a lot of critical voices, but why a substantial part of the Social Democrats was looking to Russia has nothing to do with why, for example, the AFD is looking to Russia. But the fact that sort of a lot of major and minor players in Germany have very different reasons for um, arriving at the same conclusion is probably a big factor in why this was uh, possible. Well, thank you so much. I mean, it's fascinating hearing the sort of actual historical perspective of how we are than we are. This is not just something that's a short term issue, but actually something that's been a has a very long term story and no doubt will have a, a long one to go as well. Um, my just final question would be a broader one, really, which is what's going to happen next, do you think? Where, where are the historical trends now steering us towards? What I really hope is, and I see some... Um, evidence that this might is happening and that's the most important thing is that we finally take the perspective of Central and Eastern Europe seriously and I've talked at the beginning a bit about the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact and that's for example one of the events that we really need to understand and put at the center of our collective uh, memory because this is a moment when Poland, the Baltic states are plunged into darkness for basically 50 years as uh, Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia carve up their space so what I would want to happen is to arrive at a truly post-colonial perspective that takes experience of Ukrainians, Poles, and the Balts um, seriously. And I think um, in Germany we might see a shift finally to a more a truly European way of looking at this. And that would, uh, of course, include further support for Ukraine. It's, it's very difficult to see what's going to happen in winter. It's probably a very tough winter where uh, Russia will try to solidify their gains. And we've, we've heard this a lot on uh, your podcast already. One of the weapons that they will definitely want to use is energy. I really hope that we sort of stand strong. And in the long term, I think actually this, this link between Germany and Russia when it comes to energy is probably severe. Because as I mentioned, during the Cold War, there was always the understanding that uh, the Russians would never use 
energy as a political weapon, at least not openly. And this idea is now completely dismissed. And it's very clear that Russia is using energy as a weapon to foster the expansionist agenda. And this is why we can never go back to these probably quite naive um, economic arguments. So you think there is the resolve amongst the political elite and the German people to see through winter and continue the Ukrainian support of the Ukrainian cause? There needs to be. But of course, uh, as I said, we also need to look into who's actually responsible for this. We need to get the files. And of course, some files from the North Stream Climate Foundation couldn't be found. That's one of the major political scandals in Germany in this um, spring. And we really need to make sure that we can hold those accountable who are responsible for the predicament that we are in. And of course, we need to change our political culture so that we can start seeing the world through the eyes, not only of former Stasi cadres, but also through the eyes of, as I said, the Poles, the Balls, etc. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.